UX Podcast Episode 207. You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, Jonas Söderström. And James Royal Lawson. With listeners in 182 countries, from Colombia to Thailand. Jonas, you're really helping me think about speaking slowly. I'm, I speak terribly fast, and you speak quite nicely and clearly and slowly. So I will try and do the same. Today, we are joined by Ben Sauer to talk about voice interfaces and designing voice interfaces. Ben spent about six years working at Clearleft and joined us on episode 98 back in 2015 when he attended From Business to Button conference and helped us sum up it. Well, didn't he helped us as in the podcast because um, you were there, Jonas, of course, but um, um, not presenting that particular episode. Currently, Ben is the director of conversation design at Babylon Health, a healthcare startup which makes extensive use of digital interfaces to provide healthcare to customers. And during the previous years, uh, Ben has spent a lot of time, a lot of his time researching and working with the design of voice user interfaces. And how hard can it be? Let's talk to Ben. So Ben, designing voice interfaces, um, I mean, we, we talk all the time. Surely that's a really easy thing. <laughs> yes, that is the classic assumption, yeah. <laughs> no, so I mean, the way to think about this, and I'm not the only person who said this, is, you know, We've been interacting with computers for, I don't know, in, in mass market, like sort of roughly 30 years, right? Um, although computers have been around a bit longer than that. Um, we've been interacting with our voice for potentially hundreds of thousands of years. So our expectations mm. about how it works and how well it should work are um, vastly different. And that's why traditionally phone interfaces tend to be, uh, phone voice interfaces have tended to be so disappointing to people because our expectations of the interactions are so high and the complexity behind a conversation is invisible to us as human beings because we're doing it every day we we just do it right those those billions of neurons up here that are making that happen yeah we've been doing conversations since the day we've been born we've yeah. been building that that net network layer in our heads to, to cope and deal with this yeah and you know unfortunately um i mean i let, let's let's talk about the timeless nature of this. Um, I'm going to forget the quote now, but um, uh, this, uh, I think it was uh, Aristotle who said, there is only one condition in which we may not need slaves or subordinates, and that condition would be that machines could take our commands. Mm. So the dream of us speaking to machines is a very old one, and it seems like, you know, with... Uh, Alexa and so on and Siri just in the few last few years really that that ancient dream is starting to come true but you know as we all all experienced it's kind of broken it kind of doesn't work very well and it's, that's or it's, it's an illusion yeah exactly mm. it's it's I, I say you know we're creating smart fakes we're not creating real conversations mm. actually it's we talk about voice user interface as one thing but actually it's it's actually two things isn't it it's talking to and being talked to which is two quite different 
It is. And in fact, if we talk about multimodal, that can mean that you're using one but not the other, you know. So definitely um, those means those mean two very different things and there are very different capabilities and problems attached to both. So you're absolutely right. Oh, so, so you would actually, one of your, I suppose, design decisions or even strategic decisions would be, um, are we going to create an interface which can um, interpret our commands or are we going to create an interface that can, can give, well, ask us questions and, and understand the answers? Yeah, there's, there's all sorts of interesting work being done in this. You know, I mean, multimodal isn't anything new. People have been sort of playing around with it for a long time. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the demo entitled put that there from MIT in which a man points at the screen and says things and it all works kind of together to move objects around a screen. Um, that's from the 70s. It's really old. Um, but yeah, so for example, um, I went to a talk by KLM, the Dutch airline, and they said that they're starting to practice something that they're calling touch-free design. So it's the idea of voice input, screen output. You know, So when you're holding your mobile device, people are getting so comfortable at speaking Actually, we can just remove the touch input, but you're still getting all of the output on screen as you go through a booking flow or a conversation or something that they're providing. I mean, so that that would be similar-ish to what we've seen with like Google's um, voice interface on the the mobile that you speak into your device yeah. and it it searches for you or gives you some kind of information on screen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so you know, it's um, it, it's going to get complicated, right? We're back in. Um, <laughs> we're back in a in an era that's broadly similar to when we went mobile you know we started to think oh hang on if i design one thing we're starting to learn and a lot of people have noticed this is it's it's like when we started to say mobile first right if you design it voice only first and you get that right it tends to work well in other mediums but if you do it the other way around it's really broken like you know if you take all the content in your FAQs that you wrote for screen right now, for example, let's take your content strategist and, and say, right, I'm going to pick all these out and use them as answers in a voice interface or a conversational interface. And you very quickly find, oh, this is terrible when something reads it out. <laughs> so you have to really start, to, you know, uh, in the organization I work in at the moment, which is called Babylon Health, we've started to say, like, are we thinking and designing voice first? Even if we're not necessarily delivering a voice interface, um, just starting with that thought in mind can really help us. How, if you've been working with, with say, chatbots, so, so textual conversational interfaces, mm. um, does that also fail to be a, a first step? Is, is voice really the first, absolutely the definite first yes, step? Yes, absolutely. And I would say even if you're designing a chatbot, you should be doing it in voice, even if you're not going to deliver a voice interface. Because... Mm. The motions you go through of like improvising and doing read-throughs actually make it feel and sound natural. You know, if you write, you're not, you know, when we think, sorry, when we, when we speak and when we write, we produce different outputs. And so if you want to aim for like natural, you should really be doing read-throughs and, and, and improv and things like that to make sure it's as natural as possible. I, I have a split relationship with, with, with the voice interface because it's, partly it's, I mean, it's, it's, the classic horror stuff, the disembodied voice. That's that stockpile of horror movies, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, not only Hal, but but all kinds of spirits and ghosts and things. Um, on the other hand, the first time I, I drove a car in the US with the GPS and I missed an exit on the highway and I panicked. And then comes on the voice from the GPS. 
with the most reassuring female motherly voice saying, recalculating. That <laughs> 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 so drives seven miles and exit. So, and I was so I was so relieved. I just fell in love with the GPS right there. Yeah. So it can be reassuring, but kind of scary too. Yeah. So I I have this um I have this paradox in mind that relates to that, which I've been thinking about a lot, and I think I tweeted it a while ago. Um, voice as an interface has the highest potential for trust because it's tapping into our ancient systems, you know, um, the things we've evolved to do, which is relate to other humans. But it also has the highest risk of breaking. It's the most error prone. So it's a paradox, right? You could achieve amazing levels of trust with a voice interface. But because the machines aren't there and fully understanding us yet, you can break it in a second. And I've noticed this in testing. Like if I test a long voice flow, you know, if you even encounter a smaller error up front, you can see the kind of lights go out in people's eyes. They kind of glaze over and they're like, oh, this is kind of, eh. you know, and, and so you have this paradoxical relationship that I, I assume will change over time as the capabilities of the machines increase. Now, do you think do you think that's because of the fact that you know, going back to what we said about um, we're, we're just faking it kind of thing that yeah. you know, if you do a good job of making it sound convincing, then, then our ancient brains who are used to language we really are convinced. And then it's the Wizard of Oz thing, isn't it? That the, you know, when something goes wrong, the curtain gets pulled back and we suddenly realize it's a machine. So we fall back then into dealing with a machine. And we try to, we try to adapt our behavior to now what is clearly a computer. Very much so. And in fact, I mean, even if you don't encounter an error, it starts earlier than that. So for example, um, I work with some, you know, NLP um, language uh, machine learning scientists, data scientists types. And <clears throat> at some points we've been testing like open-ended voice input, right? So saying, you know, maybe 20 to 30 words, right? We want the user to kind of give that kind of input. But when you actually test it, they just won't speak naturally to it. Like they just won't because their expectations of it being broken are being brought into the room. So you kind of, it's almost like, you know, the broken nature of it at the moment creates this kind of, everybody has their robotic Alexa voice. You've, you've all probably heard it, right? And, and actually, <laughs> the when the technology can accept more natural conversation, we've got a design problem, which is to say, no, hey, user, you can speak more naturally now, you know? Oh, you mean, yeah, exactly, transitioning users um, yeah. from, from uh, one expectation of an interface to another, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Wizard of Oz, I mean, James brought that up, and that is the classic example, but you're actually using that as a method for designing, aren't you? Yes, I do. Um, it's something I teach. It's something I, I highly advocate. And really, you know, if you've uh, not, if you're not familiar with the uh, Wizard of Oz method, I'll just quickly recap. Um, it's the idea that you play the machine, and the user is no wiser as to whether the system is truly intelligent or not. You're just pushing buttons that cue lines you've written. So the way I do this, um, I'm, I'm a real fan of sort of you know rapid, low-effort prototyping in order to improve the design. So um, along with Abby Jones at Google, I developed this method where you put your imagined dialogue into just a text file, actually, like something really, really simple and basic to edit. And then I wrote a little piece of software called SayWizard. And what SayWizard does is it maps all the lines in your dialogue to keys on your keyboards. And then you can have somebody come in for a test, 
give them a scenario and then you're just pushing the you know the qwerty keys or whatever they are on your keyboard and reading out your lines and the beauty of that is that if the dialogue goes wrong or if you know they say something unexpected the only thing you're editing is a text file in order to test with the next person or, or, or try something new again and really you know what i say in my talks is like you can hopefully get the kind of happy path 90 percent right before you've written a line of code which is pretty high success rate uh, from a from a prototype and testing it is i mean what that doesn't capture is the um unending kind of uh, well uh, well of despair that is error recovery <laughs> so we, we 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 spend most of our time in voice actually dealing with all the ways in which the conversation can break and all the ways in which a machine might uh, misinterpret or misunderstand i think what's important to know is that our language is so deeply conceptual and implicit the things that we take for granted as concrete are, are really not if you break them down there's so much sort of shared context that we have with other humans, even in this conversation that, you know, I don't need to give a specific instruction. You know, when I say Wednesday, you will probably infer next Wednesday, right? <laughs> you know, and a machine cannot make that assumption. So you have to go through layers of smart design and confirmation and error recovery to be absolutely sure that we're capturing the input we want. And this is far less of a problem on screen. So, so also then, I mean, if I guess that what falls into the, the the realm of errors is also like task divergence. That that your interface is what I mean by that is that your interface is designed for a particular task, but when mm -hmm. I'm talking to your interface. I'm human, so I kind of wonder, and I, you know, the whole, oh, by the way, well, can't you just, uh, while you're doing that, so all these things that we kind of throw into normal conversations, yeah. you, you, that becomes effectively an error pattern. Yeah, so, um, you know, voice is an unbounded input, and um, I, I think it's an interesting transition for screen designers, because screen designers are often a little bit of the OCD, right? They're often a little bit of like, well, I define the buttons user and I tell you where you can go, you know, and I make it nice and tidy. And of course, a conversation is just this enormously messy spaghetti pile of assumptions and mental models and all the different places it could go. So um, you have to kind of abandon your sense of control over what's going on. And you have to, the, the principle I talk about most is managing expectations, right? How do you convey to a user that it can't do everything and then kind of gracefully get them back on track when they ask for something off the rails that you're providing? Oh, so it's like nudging, but, but dialogue nudging. Yeah, yeah. And you can do it gracefully without it feeling like an error. But it's difficult. It, it's, it's very easy to build a, a happy path voice interface. Absurdly easy. You know, it's much easier than a screen interface. Uh, it can just be as simple as writing a text file. Mm. But to actually make it robust, um, and, it, and of course it is the most error-prone mode of input that we have, right? It's, I, I sometimes like to say, um, you know, uh, a trackpad a Scottish accent never broke my trackpad, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> Why right? then, if, if this kind of interface is so complicated and so error-prone and so, so, so extremely messy, I say, what, what's causing the shift towards voice? What's the reason for going there? Okay, so um, I guess like many technologies that are buzzwords at the moment, machine learning has powered most of what we're seeing um, in the voice space. So 
just for context, before with like phone systems that we spoke to, they had what was called like fixed dialogue, right? Or fixed grammars. So you could, it could only recognize a very, very limited number of words that were spoken in a very particular way. In fact, the very first voice interface going back to the 50s could only understand 10 digits spoken by one person. And so now we have machine learning and deep learning. We can say, right, you know, if you're Google or if you're Amazon, you can take a thousand examples of a word, you know, uh, audio clips of a word. Let's say uh, uh, we're in Sweden, so sustroming, you know, so something, you mm. know, like that. And... Um, which is a fish for the non-Swedish audience, a fish dish. A fermented, <laughs> rotting one. Yes. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, through deep learning, by analysing all the ways in which we say the same words and all the different samples of it, it can then get a much higher recognition rate if somebody new says that word. Um, so that's the one layer. That's called the automated speech recognition. And then the second layer down, so once you've actually just understood what the words are, like, you know, writing it out in text, for example. That's what the machine's capturing as a first layer. Then the second layer is actually uh, applying meaning to that and rooting the user in the appropriate direction. So that's where natural language processing comes in. So when I say something ambiguous like, Alexa, play live and let die, Alexa can then infer that um, because I listened to the Wings version of that last week, I mean wings, and because I'm saying it in my kitchen to a speaker, uh, I want to listen to a song, and I don't want to play the James Bond film on my TV screen. So you can see with that example the unimaginable ambiguity, or, or sorry, the endless ambiguity in the things that we say that a computer then has to deal with. I mean, something that's well, I think any of us that live in families. Um, will have will have come across and has a, a voice interface somewhere will have come across the whole um, hierarchy problem as well um, that you know I don't want the kids to override my music choice or you know um, the, the, when you're angry you shouldn't really delete all my photos of my of my wife or whatever because I don't really mean mean it in the heat of the moment you know the, that that kind of understanding of the of the context is um, is is incredibly difficult to to interpret. Exactly. We have no real sense day to day of the enormous subtlety that our brain is sort of dealing with and calculating instantly on. Um, and actually, th that one you mentioned there, you know, let's say deleting something, right? I mean, this, this is actually where if voice interfaces are going to be truly sort of useful and companion-like to us, then they really need to do a much better job of understanding that context, understanding who we are, and all the security implications that, that are attached to that, you know, and, and, and the controls we have over that with the big platforms at the moment are incredibly basic because it's such a hard problem, understandably so. I mean, are you, is this what we would call then affordance in a voice interface? Some, some kind of, you know, like when there is things that, like deleting, that we would make sure that you, you really are sure kind of thing or maybe we can, you can recover it, there's an undo. We have to build a similar kind of thing into voice interfaces. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to put it really bluntly, if we're talking about a voice-only interface, there is no affordance. Mm. Uh, it's like, I, I liken it to, you know, if, if looking at website navigation is standing on a highway looking at the signs above the highway telling you where to go, then a voice interface is like standing in the desert 
spinning 360 degrees around with no clue where to go, <laughs> you know, because it's two layers, right? It's t there's two layers to that. There's how do I speak to it? Like what, what words and commands will it accept? And then there's also what can it do? So there's the how do I talk to it? And then there's discovery. So so the affordance issue is 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 kind of double. I think with with regards to um, not deleting all my photos, I guess, you know, that is, I suppose, more to do with confirmation, I would say, you know, as in, we would in a screen interface, um, be very careful about an action like that. And we would make it very undoable. So if you were asking a person, one of the main questions you need to ask when you're designing voice is, what would a person do? Mm. You know, really, that's, that's kind of the main question, right? So, you know, if you were commanding somebody in your office to delete all your photos, they would look at you quizzically and go, really? <laughs> you know, and that's the same expectation we'd have. Yeah. Or if you ask a friend, I mean, if I, if I said to Jonas, Jonas, can you delete all the pictures of my wife? Jonas might well go, OK, I'll do it. But he wouldn't do it. <laughs> I, no. I mean, you'd, 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 you'd I, maybe... I would lie. <laughs> exactly. You, you, there, would, yeah. there would be like a, a, the compassion in you or the understanding, the human understanding would go, James really would regret this tomorrow. Yeah, or once he's through the divorce process, yes, he really would. <laughs> My wife's going to hate this episode as an example. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, oh, there's so many human aspects to a, to a voice interface that um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it 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 basically you're tripping into all these like social expectations that we mostly are not dealing with in in screen world. I had another thought, really, as well. Is that we're, of course we're talking about designing voice interfaces and the the way that we have to test them and prototype them, but how do you go about actually building them? How do you go about building them? Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, so it's mostly done through the means of writing dialogues. Well, okay, I'm skipping bits here. Okay, let me let me let me take you through some of the basics that I, that I try to teach. Um, so there's one understanding what your kind of use case is, which is a sort of user research slash strategic question. That's step one. Step two is sort of standard UXE practices, right? Like user research would tell you, well, how do people talk about that thing? And what are their expectations of a conversation in this situation? You know, if you were designing a coffee app, you would, a voice app, you would go and sit in a cafe and listen to how people order coffee. Um, and then you would start the process of like imagining how those dialogues go. So it might be like storyboarding, role play, um, writing scripts. And then you do some sort of like, um, you know, early stage testing where you just kind of play around a bit. Like I mentioned with the Wizard of Oz testing, you know, you're not trying to solve the whole thing, but you kind of see if you're on the right track. Um, and then once you've got some sense of whether you're in the right direction, you would then go into like flows, right? So you're, you're literally just designing flow diagrams at various sort of levels of zoom. So you might have like the overview flow diagram, which sort of tells you here are the use cases. So like, um, I want to book something, I want to change it, I want to cancel it, you know, those, those might, or I want to check it, you know, that, that might be, you know, I'm booking a train ticket, I need to do those four things. And so you need to make sure the conversations work for those. And then you need to start like designing the endless amounts of error recovery in those very complicated conversations. Um, and then you're passing that on to developers and, and testing sort of real artifacts. 
And I would say like most of the voice interfaces that people have designed for, you know, smart speakers, they really haven't had the rigor that that we would consider to be appropriate in in UX world. You know, they it's very easy to just make something that works for the happy path and um be done with it and launch something. So for example, um I, I sometimes turn on something called sleep sounds for my kids, which is just, you know, does rain noises and things like that to kind of, you know, help them go to sleep. And it's incredibly rigid. Like you can only say certain things to it. If, if I say open sleep sounds and then I say, um, what kind of sounds do you have? There's no answer to mm. that. Like it has to be spoken to in an incredibly rigid way. I have to look at a screen to find out what sounds it can produce. So your job really as a UXer, I suppose, in this space is to make sure that you're building in lots of the error recovery and flexibility that we would have um, expectations around in a human conversation. You're designing, as a designer here, you're designing phrases and flows of dialogue. But what about emotion? What about tone of voice? Ah, yeah. So I, I kind of skipped that one, actually. Um, I do. <laughs> because it's hard. It, I guess um, I, I spend a lot of time in the early stages thinking about the persona. Mm. Now, at the moment, the, the way in which the voice interface expresses itself, most designers have fairly limited control. You're not necessarily choosing an original human voice to use. You cannot control the nuances of the expression very well. So you're mostly what you're designing around is word choice. Mm. Uh, Google do allow you to choose from a subset of voices for their actions, so that's quite useful. Um, and then you have a language called SSML, so uh, it's a speech markup language like HTML, so you can sort of add pauses or emphasis, but it's quite... Um, that's very rudimentary, I mean just emphasis is... Yeah, it's very... Very rudimentary, yeah. Like, like we, we've started to design websites with just strong an emphasis uh, for typography, substituting for, for all kinds of, of amazing type, typographic detail. And, and I mean, somewhere, some, at some point, we need to be able to direct the voices with other kinds of commands, I guess. Like, I mean, I, it's the Anton Chekhov uh, place where you have a, a phrase which says like cheerfully through tears mm. which is from from um three sisters i think so yes i studied it I, um, I, I, I would love to hear like the voice of uh, saying that my train is delayed or something like that yeah <laughs> to have that been been expressed cheerfully through tears I'm sorry, yeah but <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i love that's a that's a lovely yeah a lovely rich example um so what Amazon are actually experimenting with at the moment is um, using deep learning to analyze um, contextual tone of voice, so or subject tone of voice, if you like. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. So for example, give it a thousand hours of news readers speaking uh, the news, and then have it express a couple of paragraphs of text differently using the expressions it has learned from all the samples of newsreaders. So that in the future, we could say, right, I'm, you know, I'm doing a cheerful food delivery app. This is the kind of domain or tone of voice or subtleties that I need. 
And then when you write your dialogue, the machine is learning what kind of expression it, it ought to give your dialogue, um, as well as maybe some manual control over that as well. To finish off, uh, oh, we're going to have to finish off shortly, but the, um, uh, when you said then about the markup language, and we've also mentioned um, Google, we've mentioned Siri, we've mentioned Alexa, and this Katana as well. Uh, how much are you forced to kind of design for each of these individual platforms? Is it one markup language you can use? Is it, do we have a HTML for, for, for voice? <laughs> um, I'm, yes, I'm shaking my head. No. Um, there are some broad principles that are the same, but the platforms do tend to work differently. And, and it's probably, I think somebody at, um, at Google said it is a bit like the early days of the browser, right? Oh, Where, yes. <laughs> you know, you, you have to kind of think differently about each one in a slightly different way. Uh, you can't use the same tools yet to kind of export, you know, your designs into them. I mean, that's starting to happen. You know, we're starting to see an ecosystem of tools that will help with that. But it's very early days. So what I what I train people on is like, look, you, you're going to have to do some reconnaissance around the platform you're designing for, because not only are they different, but they're changing all the time. Like the, the capabilities are, are, are improving quite uh, at quite a pace. So you have to kind of stay on top of it. I think the, the analogy comparing it to the uh, early days of, of the browser and also maybe the early days of mobile when mm. you know we, we still suffer from that that you know companies choose to do the the ios app or the android app or the web app or you know the, yeah. and they're all slightly different you've got different challenges it's um yeah we seem to have been destined to never really be truly free from that life as a designer <laughs> <laughs> no i think kevin kelly calls it like the the sort of technium doesn't he, he calls it that there's this he has this idea of a metaphorical world or drive that just keeps pushing the progress and we're all kind of caught in the vortex caught in the vortex that's yeah, yeah i don't know if that should be my job title or my epitaph <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much ben for joining us and talking about voice interviews oh no it's a great pleasure it's been nice to talk to you again Thank you for spending your time with us. Links and notes from this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com if you can't find them in your pod playing tool of choice. There should also be a transcript available there too. And if you want something to listen to next, then we recommend episode 121, which is Agentive Technology with Chris Nossel. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. there? Croc and Dial. Croc and Dial who? Croc and Dial Dundee. <laughs>